how often have you found yourself juggling schedules to make everything fit? Or collapsing onto your pillow at the end of the day with this nagging sense of not having finished the work. Pressures building up on all the things that you hadn't have time to do. Thinking there just aren't enough hours in a day. Endless activities, school functions and rehearsals and music lessons and art lessons and athletic practices and events. We're constantly on the go. The family vehicles, they're really taxi cabs, right? They carry clients from home to school to practice to lesson to the friend's house to the youth function and then back home again. And by the time we settle down at night, we're exhausted. And the next day, we get up and do it all over again. There's no margin. There's no space between ourselves and our limits. We've scheduled and committed right up to the limits of what we can handle. We're overloaded. Overloaded is when you don't have time to finish with excellence what you've committed to do. Margin, a healthy pattern of life, is when you have time to finish a project with excellence and then to relax before the next begins. You know the pattern. You're 20 minutes late to the doctor's office because you were 10 minutes late dropping the kids off at school because the car ran out of gas two blocks from the gas station and you didn't have your wallet. You know, this kind of build-up where there's no margin. So what do we do with our overscheduled, margin-less lives? You know what we do? We speed up. That's what we do. We hurry. We read faster and we talk faster and we listen faster. And when somebody's talking to us, we nod so that they'll get to the point more quickly. And whenever we have to wait, we get frustrated. Whenever we're interrupted, we get angry. Have you ever been in the grocery store counting the cards in the checkout line, looking for the shortest line or at the red light, counting the cars, trying to pick out the right lane of traffic? It's not working. We've lost something. Life is cluttered. You get to the end of the day only to look back and have no sense of a whole. It all looks like a blur. It's been shattered into a million interruptions and fragmented into all of these little tasks. And you have no sense of it. You never feel in control. When you're too busy, life starts to fray at the edges. You find yourself going through the motions, but you're passionless. You're doing more and enjoying it less. And you can't let up, not even on the weekends, because you'll just get further and further behind. And what do we, what do we get from this joyless merry-go-round of activity that never seems to stop? What we get from it is a loss of patience and a loss of presence. We're not in the moment anymore. We're, we're consumed with our anxiety over what we didn't do and fear of what we've got coming. We lose attention, the ability to be alert to the sacred individual in front of us and to the presence of God. Gone is the joy and the delight and the wonder of childhood. Gratitude is in short supply and criticism and irritation are more the order of the day. And we get sloppy. 
There's a lack of excellence in the things we do. We become undependable. And on top of all of that, when we're too busy to attend to our own needs, if someone who is less busy than us shows up, we get put out with them when their needs impinge upon us. If someone makes a change of plans and it affects your already overpacked schedule, they're to blame. They come under the gun of your frustration and anger and criticism. These irritations, they lead to conflicts and bitterness and finally a crisis moment and you just have to quit a bunch of stuff. You hit a wall, you have a short-term burnout, you need to rest and recover and then you get back on the merry-go-round. But this hyper-busy culture is not normal. Our frantic pace is unprecedented in human history. Our homes are filled with time-saving devices. Microwaves, refrigerators, dishwashers, automatic sprinklers, bread machines. You would think I'd have more time than my grandfather. You would think we have ample time to spare. But we don't. Now our passage from the gospel this morning, if you, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there to Matthew chapter 6. Here is Jesus preaching. He's near the end of one of his most famous sermons. Mary Grace, will you turn the light on for Michelle and them? They might can read better. Thanks. Ah. Here's Jesus near the end of his most famous sermon. Look what it says in verse 34. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, that's just laughable, isn't it? In our culture. I mean, we're... We're so inoculated with the Bible, we don't even notice. What? Are you kidding me? Jesus, are you smoking crack? I mean, how is that even possible? How can I even lay my head down on the pillow and take that seriously in light of the life I'm living? Tomorrow we be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, there is so much going on here. But part of what is lying beneath the surface of what Jesus is saying is this. God does not give us more to do in a day than we can do in a day. That's under the surface of what Jesus is saying. If there is more to do in your day than you can do in a day, it has not come from God. When we encounter Jesus in his biographies in the four gospels, we meet someone who is not busy, he's not in a hurry. He practices what he preaches. Now, did he have heavy demands? Yes, saving the cosmos, right? (laughs) Three years to do it, go. (laughs) Did did he have difficult work to do? Holy cow, navigating the socioeconomic pressures, the, the turmoil of the Middle East. I mean, you try to navigate that now. His task and responsibility might well have driven a man out of his mind. But Jesus... You never find him in the Gospels in a hurry. And don't have this kind of ethnocentrism of thinking your life is more complicated. I mean, do you see the irony? Do you see the patronizing uh, traps we can fall into if we think, well, Jesus, he was God, <laughs> you know? That, that's not the picture the Bibles are giving about the reason he's not in a hurry. 
He was never impressed by numbers. He was never a slave to a clock. His life wasn't this frantic jetting about, breakfast in Jerusalem, lunch in Damascus, supper in Antioch. (laughs) Jesus had this wide margin of quiet leisure that defied the dehumanizing demands imposed on him by others. As a result, whenever you encounter Jesus in the Gospels, there was a gentle readiness to welcome others, to receive them with grace, to accommodate them with encouragement. He's a model to all, what would Jesus do with his time? I mean, look, he's a model to all of us of the kind of non-busy life that is fully engaged and fully involved and deeply present to the person at hand. But Jesus, he never gives us a sense that he's rushed. Now, I'm blessed. I was raised by parents who in this respect are like Jesus. I have never seen my mom and dad in a hurry. This is a remarkable thing. Mom and dad have had much work to do in their lives. Much important work. My dad had a career in an industry that is well known for brutalizing people and burning them out. He was a pastor. The dropout rates in the pastorate are phenomenal. But dad has never given me the impression that he had to hurry off from a conversation to me, which is quite a thing if you've ever been in a conversation with me. I'm not a short conversationalist. It, 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 it astounds me to look back at, at the 38, long, 39 now, years of life I've had and to realize that there is never, I have no, no memory of mom and dad being anxious or their bodies being fidgety to move on to something else. There's never been a time in my life that I've called my dad on the phone and he's made me get the sense, he's given me the sense I interrupted. There hasn't been a single time in my life that my mom has hurried past me. They always receive me as a person who's sacred. And furthermore, they never seem to get engaged in activities that are beyond their reasonable limits as human beings. It's as if mom and dad have this internal governor that effectively checks any urge to do more than is wise or prudent. It it appears to me, I, I can't see a time that they've ever undertaken more work than they can do with calmness of spirit. What I'm saying is, You don't have to be busy. It is the water we swim in. It is the air we breathe. But if there was ever a thing at which we must not be conformed to this world, but we must live by the rules of another world, another kingdom, it is the issue of our time. You don't have to be busy. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to slow down. We all know that that's not the case. What I'm saying is that even though there are legitimate seasons in life of busyness, there absolutely are. You know, a nursing mom, she's lucky if she can tie her shoes, much less get anything else done. You know, there are moments in careers, there are moments 
where it's almost impossible to be anything else. And I'll touch on some of that in the weeks to come. Why we're busy and how complex this thing is. But there, are, there is some incredibly powerful and practical wisdom in Scripture that can enable you and me, it can enable us to live lives of calmness and patience and joy and alertness to God and to what's going on around us. There is a way off the treadmill. So this Sunday and for the next three Sundays, we're going to explore this biblical wisdom that we so desperately need in our frenetic culture. Now, to get us started, when it comes to time, there are three foundational views, beliefs, commitments in Scripture. And I'm going to introduce them this morning. And then for the next three weeks... We're going to unpack them and begin to look at some of their very practical implications. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 to find the first of these three foundational ideas about time. I'll touch on this more next week, but in that passage Ellie read us, Do not be conformed to this world is um, sandwich, that phrase in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. By on the one hand, have your mind renewed, and on the other hand, offer your body to God. If you want to come out of this world on any given subject, whether it's sexuality or work or time, you have to attack it from those two angles, from the embodied practices of your life and from the things you think. So what I'm going to do is present to us this morning three basic issues that Scripture gives us that we need to change our mind on when it comes to time. A big part of our problem is we think about time in a worldly way, and I mean that in a negative sense, instead of in the way God says to approach it. And if we're going to change our lives, we've got to renew our minds on this issue. Number one, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, this poem that Alan read to us. For everything there's a season, every time, for every mat, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what's planted, a time to kill. It goes on through all of this. The point of this whole poem is that God has created the universe in such a way there is a time for everything. That's, that's the point of the poem. But keep reading. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also put eternity in man's heart. It's so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to men. Time is a gift. From God to humans. Now, it's God who created time. Satan did not come up with that. And think about that very fact. Time is a gift. If time to you is a tyrant, something's wrong. Something's not the way it's supposed to be. God gave us time as a gift. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. 
Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day. And he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Time is God's invention. It's the first thing we're told God made. He made this ability for time to exist. He created it. And then all through Genesis 1, what does God do when he looks at the things he's made? He looks at what he's made and what does he say about it? It's good. It's good. God looked at time and said, now that's a good gift I'm going to give to humans. It's a good thing. But for many of us, time is not good. It's the enemy. It makes us frantic. Or we take it for granted and we treat it like a tool, like a human resource, like another commodity to just be consumed. We find ourselves day in, day out, racing the clock instead of receiving time. But what we need to do is we need to find another way of life, another disposition of our heart where we can actually embrace time. Instead of racing it. Where we can receive it as a gift. Instead of striving against it. Time is not our enemy. It's a meeting place. It is a point of rendezvous with God. It is within time itself. That God meets with us. We've got to learn. How to receive time. As God's gift. And stop wrestling with time. As if it were our foe. And when we do this. We can trust that the time God gives us is adequate to the task God gives us. How do we do that? How do you wake up and receive the day instead of race the day? How do you wake up and see time as a gift instead of as something to strive against? Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and notice in verse 1. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now my first point, the first basic issue with regard to time that our minds are screwed up on is that time is a gift. It's not a resource, it's not a tool, and it's not an enemy. It's a gift and it's a good thing. And if we can approach it in the right way, it will be a blessing to us instead of a curse. The second thing comes up back in Ecclesiastes again. This notion for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he goes through all the stuff, right? A time to be born, a time to die. And then he gets down to verse 9. What gain is the worker from his toil? I've seen the business of man. God has given to the children of man to be. He has made everything beautiful. What does it say after that? In its Time. Look, to receive the gift of time, this is huge. You must receive time on its own terms. You can't change it. Don't try to change the nature of time. See, our problem is we're trying to squeeze more hours. We're trying to change time. But what's going on here is that God has not only created time, he's stamped a structure on it. He's given it a rhythm. The nature of time is that time is not an undifferentiated quantity. And that is huge. 
With the invention of the clock, we've turned time into a unit of measurement of a bunch of discrete little pieces of moment that are undifferentiated from the other. But the whole point of this poem is not only that time is a gift, but time is relative, right? A guy who's in love with a girl sitting by the girl on a park bench for an hour, that hour is very different than another guy sitting on a hot stove for an hour, right? Time is relative to what you're doing. There, that time is not this undifferentiated sense of quantity. This is the second foundational teaching in the Bible with regard to time. It's that not only has God created time as a gift, he's given it a structure. God gave it a structure. Now, this is heady stuff, I know. Let, let me see if I can explain what I mean. Ecclesiastes 3, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Who gets to pick those times, right? I mean, we think now with induction and physician-assisted suicide, we've begun to try to pick these times, right? But I mean, this was written at another time entirely where the whole point of the poem is you don't get to pick this stuff. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Do you see God is the author not only of time, but of its rhythms. Its ongoing daily, weekly, seasonal rhythms. This is why Psalm 90 says, God, you teach us to number our days. You teach us how to approach days. Because it's your invention and you've put the structure in it. God, I can't figure this out. I need you to show me how to handle your gift. God's given a rhythm to time. Day and night. Months. Seasons. Years. Every one of us would admit that the Grand Canyon is more awe-inspiring than a trench. We know how to distinguish between places and how awe-inspiring. Every one of us knows the difference between a worm and an eagle. But how many of us have a similar sense of discretion for the diversity of time? Part of our problem is the invention of the clock has caused us to change the way we approach time. The great symbol of industrialization is not the steam engine. It's the big clock on the wall in the factory. It's changed the way time has become merely a measuring device. So you get to the end of the day and you didn't have enough of this to do what you wanted to do. And the result is a profound way Profound difference in the way we approach time. The measurement of life in a post-industrial society with clocks, it's no longer in seasons or weeks. It's in days. It's in days and minutes. The measurement of life is in this mechanized regularity and it is dehumanizing us. And what I mean by that, it is making us less than human and less than ourselves. See, to grow in Christ is to become truly human and truly yourself. And the whole way our culture approaches time is as devastating as the way our culture approaches sexuality. It is equally devastating. 
We're wrong to consider time to be at our disposal. To be organized and scheduled and measured and distributed and invested and spent the way we choose. According to God, according to the Bible, God controls our time. Our job is not to ask, can I do that? It's to ask, should I do that? It's not to ask, do I have time for it? It's, am I supposed to do it at this time? The whole industry of time management suggests that we're in charge of time and what we need is better abilities to control time. But the reality is we're far more passive than the time management cottage industry wants us to believe. This is obvious in the big things like when you're born and when you die. But it's even obvious in the little things, the way we handle our days and weeks. Because most of us, most of our time management is not about managing it ourselves. It's about responding to the interruptions that are out of our control. For everything there is a season and he's made everything beautiful. We're so immersed in clock culture that it is very difficult to get out of a busy way of life. Part of the problem is our schedules. But a huge part of the problem is a clock culture. But the biggest part of the problem is the dispositions of our heart. Techniques of time management can help us. There are many people that need to learn how to just handle their time a little better. But our biggest need is to look at time through the lens of faith. The point is that our great need is not to master the chaos of the day but to develop the ability to live within each day that God has given us. What we need to learn is how to live in time instead of trying to strive against time. And that's what the wisdom of Christ and his kingdom can do for us. Over the centuries, Christian people have inherited and invented wise practices for dealing with the idols of the culture. And this idol of our culture, we must deal with if we're to become truly human and truly ourselves. We desperately need to find the wisdom of God on this issue. It's a tyrant in our lives. Number three. So number one, time is a gift from God. And again, we're going to apply this in practical ways in the weeks to come. Number two, God structures time in a very particular way. And if you don't go with the grain of time, it's like a woodworker trying to work against the grain. It's going to get messy. Number three, turn back to the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want you to think about something. In a well-composed work of art, in a great piece of literature, when the author wants to introduce an idea that is of preeminent importance to the work of art, to the piece of literature, he doesn't just introduce the idea haphazardly. He's very careful with how he brings up the subject that is fundamental to the work. It's more like the way a king is presented at an official ceremony. 
There's a lot of work going in to thinking when and how does the king approach. In the Bible, words are employed with exquisite care. Especially the words in the Bible that act like pillars of fire leading us into the world of the Bible. One of the most distinguished words in the Bible. One of the words in the Bible that is a pillar of fire leading us into the world of the Bible is the word holy. As much as any word in the whole Bible, this word holy guides us into the mystery of God and his work in the world. Now, what was the first holy object in the Bible? Was it a mountain? Was it an altar? It's, it's, it's interesting. The first time in the Bible the word holy is used is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. This is the first time the word holy comes up in the Bible. And it is one of the key pillars of fire to lead you into the world of the Bible. How incredibly significant is the fact that the first use of the word holy is applied to time. God blessed the seventh day. He made a moment in time, not a mountain, not an altar. He made a moment in time holy. There is no record in all of the creation account to anything else being endowed with the quality of holiness but time. This is a radical departure from all of the other pieces of literature that were written at the same time as Genesis. When you read literature from other religions written around this time, they are not sanctifying time. The things that get sanctified there are something else entirely. You would expect when you're reading Genesis 1 that that after heaven and earth have been established, God would have created a holy place, maybe a mountain or holy spring. Yet it seems as if to the Bible, holiness in time is what comes first. When history began, there was only one holiness in the world, and that holiness was in time. At at Sinai, when when the word of God was about to be voiced at Mount Sinai, God called for humans to be holy. Thou shalt be unto me a holy people. And it was only after the humans had succumbed to the temptation of worshiping a thing, the golden calf, that that we have the erection of a tabernacle, a holy object. But that's the order in Scripture. The sanctity of time came first, then the sanctity of man, and then last the sanctity of an object. Remember in the Ten Commandments, holy is only used with one thing, time. It's not used in any of the other commandments. It's time. That we're told is holy. God created all the stuff of this universe. And he says in chapter 1, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he says, time, it's holy. 
What I'm saying is, in all three of these things put together, is that God has a claim on time. God, time is a gift. Time has a structure. Time is holy. You add all these up, you know what it means? God has a claim on time. The time has an ethical dimension. That's the third foundational element here. Time has this, it's holy, it's got this ethical dimension. Now, in in the upcoming sermons, we're going to work out these three facts, and I'm going to apply it next week to a day. What do these three things mean about the way we can approach a day so that we can receive a day instead of fighting a day? And then the week after that, a week. I'll deal with God's structure of a week and how we can treat a week in a holy way and receive it instead of fighting it. And then a year in the, in the final sermon. Now I'm going to close with this. Once you recognize that time is a gift from God, structured by God, made holy by God, then you recognize that our culture of busyness Our culture of hurry is not only psychologically harmful, it is morally wrong. At the heart of this whole series of messages is this. The real problem with busyness and hurry is not a disordered schedule. The real problem of busyness and hurry is a disordered heart. And we've been swimming in this culture so long... We've never even noticed how broken this is. We've been tyrannized by our culture. And if we're going to be conformed to this world, then just passively go with the current. But if we are not to be conformed to this world, we must do two things. We've got to develop some physical embodied practices that allow ourselves to present our bodies to God in time. And secondly, we've got to be renewed in our mind to where we we look at time. And this is going to be one of the most countercultural moves a Christian in this society can do. See, we're so accustomed to thinking about being countercultural with our sexual ethic we must be countercultural with regard to our approach to time because it is holy. It belongs to God. It's a gift and it's structured by God. The real problem beneath our hurry and busyness is a disordered heart. Busyness is a spiritual illness. And it's contagious. And we've just been born into it. Like children in Africa are being born with AIDS. Through no fault of their own, right? And it's destroying them. And we've been born into a culture that is deeply out of sorts with the grain of the universe. The way God made time to function. You cannot be truly human and truly yourself at a quick pace. You cannot speed walk with God. If you want to follow somebody, you can't go faster than them. You want to follow Jesus? He's pretty slow in the scriptures. All these commands in the Bible about be still and know that I am God. Wait on God. Wait on God. Busyness and hurry are not a symptom of our deep commitments. They are a symptom of our betrayals. The American way of life is doomed to destruction. We're going to say that in a minute when we recite the creed. We believe that the American way of life is doomed to destruction and another kingdom is being formed right now in secret that will take its place forever. 
Our calling is to embody that kingdom now, not only with the way we handle our bodies sexually, but with the way we handle time. Both your body and time are gifts from God that he has claims upon. So we must put our hearts in the picture. It's not enough to just slow down or to simplify your lifestyle. Over the next several weeks, we must deal radically with the things that are driving us, that are compelling us. Some of the reasons we're busy are external, but most of them are internal. Most of them are brokennesses in our souls. We need to deal radically with these things. It is important to learn to manage our time, but it is far more powerful and important to learn to manage our hearts. And that's the rub. Let's pray.